He's got things for us to do, so we're not there yet. And what we want to do today is we want to uh, I'm continue trying to work through this, uh, uh, these letters to the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation. So you might want to turn to Revelation chapter 2. In fact, d- do it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29, because we're going to look at the church in Thyatira. Uh, it's the fourth letter of Jesus that he gave to uh, the apostle John to record um, for this church, but it's more than that. Let me just make a few comments. Whenever you read a passage in, of Scripture, if you can, especially a passage like this, you want to ask it some questions. You know, I mean, this is the this is the living, unchanging, authoritative word of our Creator to us. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, recording this to the Apostle Paul. He is writing exactly what he wants to write so that we can read exactly what he wants us to read. And as we come to the Word of God, we want to ask things like this. We want to to ask about the passage. What is it saying about Jesus Christ? What is it saying about his nature? What is it saying about who he is? What is it saying about his character? Is there anything about his purpose that we can glean from this passage? And then we also want to ask ourselves, what does it say about the church? How does the church function? Is it say anything about the work, what the church should do or what it should address or how the church should live? That's the second question. And then the third one is, what is this passage saying about me? In other words, how does it want me to think? How does the Lord want me to apply the living word to my specific situation? What is it that he's asking me to do? So those are, those are questions that we ask of the text and that we're going to be thinking about as we get into this text today. Now, in the first couple of chapters of Revelation, we're introduced to Jesus Christ. And as you know, he is not uh, in Revelation Depicted like we often think of him when we think of the picture on the wall that we, you know, where Jesus is kind of glowing and his, uh, his hair is nice and in place and everything, and he looks like a really nice guy. But in Revelation, we see he's much more than that, that he is magnificent and that he is majestic. And it describes how he has the power and authority that we often forget over all powers and authority. That he has the authority over governments and he has the authority over economic systems and the authority even over the media. Things are not happening outside of his control. He has, even has the authority over uh, bonehead people. They don't seem to make sense. They don't escape the umbrella of the authority of Jesus Christ. He's even Lord over our suffering and our pain that we go through. So I think what the book is trying to get us to say, to think about is to think about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, when we specifically come to these letters, these letters are written to actual churches in Turkey that existed in modern-day Turkey, that existed back in the, uh, at the turn of the uh, first century. And so they're written to actual churches with situations that were going on in the church. But they're also written to the church today. How can we take what was going on there, and if the shoe fits, how do we wear it? How do we apply it in the church? And then finally, they're written for believers to examine their lives, to hold up the the mirror of the Word of God to their life, like a mirror. It looks to me like most, if not all of you, 
looked in the mirror this morning and you did something that affected the way that you look. That's the normal thing to do. Well, that's what the Bible is. You don't just look in the mirror and, and say, man, that's just, that's, I look terrible today. And then get dressed and go to work or do whatever you have to do. You do something about it. And that's why the word of God is, is written. So for instance, when, when uh, we read the letter that uh, was addressed to the church in Ephesus, the first letter, uh, we understand that they were strong in many ways. They're very strong in, in doctrine and holding forth the truth. But it says that they lost their first love. So we want to read that and want to ask ourselves, who is my first love? What's competing for my love of Jesus Christ and for my love for people? Or then you go to the ch- second church, the church in Smyrna, where, where Jesus said that you are a very rich church. And they weren't rich materially, they were rich spiritually because they were being persecuted, even being put to death for their faith. And nonetheless, they were standing strong in the face of persecution. And so we might want to look at that church and we might want to say, how far would I go for my faith? How willing am I to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ? Strong and and, and rich may not be what we tend to think of strong and rich. So you're looking at the word of God and addressing it, the church that's there in Smyrna. And then the third is the church in Pergamum. It was a church that was compromising. It was allowing false teachers to kind of come in and try to uh, pull away members of the church, trying to get them to compromise their faith. And so we read that letter and then we, we, we hold the word of God up and, and, and we might ask ourselves, I wonder if I am compromising my faith by some false idea that's trying to gain a foothold in my heart. So it's a, it's a mirror. That's why these letters were written. And so now we come to the fourth church in Revelation chapter two, the church in Thyatira. And it's, it's the smallest of the seven cities but it's the most verses given to it of any church. And this is very complex. So let's look at the Word of God. It says, And to the angel, or messenger, or pastor, or leaders of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality." Behold, I'll throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
The one who conquers, or your, your translation might say, the one who overcomes and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of the Lord that lasts forever. So what's going on here? I mean, what's the situation that caused Jesus to address uh, this church in Thyatira? Well, it was a smaller town. You know, these other places had, uh, you know, if you remember, they had gardens and they had estates and they had these, these huge temples that were ornate and well-designed and, and very, very impressive where they would worship uh, their, their idols in these large cities. And, and, so, and they had big libraries and medical centers. And Thyatira didn't have any of those. In fact, in the history of the town, it was sort of located as a place, it's like a one-stop town that you go through on the road on the way to other towns. And so when armies would come marching in in order to take over Pergamum, in order to take over another town, then they would go through there and they would just take over Thyatira. And so whatever army was coming through, so they, they couldn't really do anything because they were always sort of being held captive and they couldn't really develop much. But when Rome came in and established the Roman Empire and the peace of Rome, then Thyatira became stable and they began to develop a healthy trade. They began to be a wealthy city, commerce. They were like a wealthy blue-collar town. And the things that they did is they they, uh, uh, had factories and then they had uh, organizations and businesses and they would do... Uh, they, they had a purple dye that was unique to that location. And so they would dye wool and they, would, they, would, uh, they had tanners there and they had bakers there and they had uh, brass workers there. And, and so there's a lot of commerce that was going on in the town. Well, that's, that's a good thing. It was prospering. But being sort of a blue-collar town and the fact that Thyatira was not a, a right-to-work state... Every trade had a union. Every trade had a guild. And these guilds were like fraternities. They were like the places of society, and they were very, very powerful. Uh, They had such control that it was very difficult to gain employment at all uh, if you were not a member of one of these. And it was you were ostracized from society if you didn't participate in one of these guilds. And they wanted you to participate So the members were supposed to support their union. That's fair enough. They're supposed to attend meetings. They're supposed to pay their dues. They're supposed to participate in everything that was going on, and that's right to expect. If you want to be a member, you should be a good member. So they would hold these meetings, and they would do whatever business they had to do, but they would always start their meetings by sacrificing to the particular deity that every trade guild had. So if you were a baker, you'd have a deity. If you were a, uh, a wool maker or a dyer of fine dye, then you would, you would have a guild, whatever it was, you would have a union. They were very powerful. And then they would go to their meetings and they would start out by sacrificing to their particular deity. The next thing they would do is they would raise a cup of wine to their deity. And then after that, they would say grace. 
And they would say grace, thanking their little God for whatever blessings were bestowed upon them. They were giving him credit. They were worshiping him. And then they would take the food that was sacrificed and they would have a feast. Following the feast, they would start to party. And it wasn't like a chili cook-off or a bingo night. They, the wine would flow and the people would get loose and they actually welcomed sexual immorality to these meetings that they were going to. So can you see the dilemma you would be in if you were a believer? I mean, you tell me, it's a, it's a tough situation. Put yourself in their shoes. You could, you could keep your job by participating in these festivities, but if you did that, you would compromise your faith and it would go against your conscience. Or you could not go to the meetings. You could walk out of the meetings when things got rough, but it would only be a matter of time before you lost your job and you were ostracized uh, from society. So this is what the question would be. The question would be, I wonder, I just wonder if there's some way that I can be a good Christian and still keep my job. And I can still have the things and I could still be accustomed to the, the lifestyle that I have, that I have attained. Maybe, maybe I could be a Christian and I could do both. Well, guess what? Here comes someone in the church who had a solution. There's a woman who was a self-proclaimed prophetess. That means that she was proclaiming that she was speaking the, the word of God on the authority of a prophet. And apparently she was involved in the church. Not outside, but she was in the church, possibly a member of the church. Now, researchers don't know exactly who this person was, and some people even said that if you, if you take a narrow interpretation of the Greek language, it could very well be that this is the wife of the pastor of the church. I hope that's not the case. I don't think that's the case. What we know for sure is that she was at least involved in the church, maybe a believer, maybe not, and she had a following in the church. And here's what she was saying. She was saying, you know, it's okay to do both. It's okay to participate fully in the guild and, and to be a good church member. It's okay to do that. And this was the logic that she was using. It's one of two things. She was saying one of two things or a combination of the two. First, maybe what she was saying was something like, it's okay to be a full-fledged member of a guild. It's okay to enjoy it and to participate and to vest yourself in it because you see, your relationship with Christ is spiritual. And what you're doing in this guild is physical. And there's a spiritual part to life, and there's a physical part to life, and they don't intersect. So whatever you do physically doesn't harm what you do spiritually. You can still come to church. You can still be a good church member. You can still worship the Lord. Jesus still loves you. God will still forgive you, but there's really nothing to forgive. Hmm. Or maybe she was saying this. If you look at verse 24, it talks about the deep things of Satan. Probably that was, that was, she was probably saying these are the deep things of God. Secret things of God, which is always the sign of a false teacher. There's a secrecy about it. And Jesus was saying, no, these are not the deep things of God. These are the deep things of Satan. So what she possibly saying was this. You know what? 
If you really want to be an effective Christian, the way to do it is to get involved and experience the other side. Because you see, the real nature of the world and the flesh and sin and all these things can't be experienced by reading a book. You need to live it for yourself. In fact, if you really want to be a better witness, and if you really want to better serve Christ, serve him in a more effective way, and if you really want to be an example of the grace and mercy of God to other believers, and you want to know God deeper, this is a great opportunity. Because the more you experience sin, the more you'll appreciate the grace of God. Those are logic. And people are going, hmm, not only can I keep my job and my lifestyle, but I can actually be a better me. I can be a more effective Christian if I go all in. That was the reasoning. And there were people in the church who were jumping on her bandwagon. Do you see the problem? Many ways that's a problem. I'll just give you one. Several decades earlier, and this is out of Acts chapter 15, several decades earlier, there were some Gentiles who were being converted to the faith. And there were Jewish Christians who were there that were saying, you know, we're glad that you're converted, but you've got to be circumcised like us. That's a rule. You've just got to do it. And these Gentiles are saying, well, we don't understand that. We don't understand why we have to do this. They'd come from such a different background. And so Paul and some of his friends decided we need to go down to Jerusalem and we need to get with the elders and the apostles and we need to get them to study this matter and we need to talk about it so that they can make a decision on how to handle this matter should Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be a member, in order to be a, a, a believer. It's called the Jerusalem Council. So they talked about it, and they debated it, and then Paul stood up and gave some comments, and then they talked about it a little bit more. And here's what they decided. This was their ruling, and so Paul was going to send it to all the, go to all the other churches and, and give this ruling, and it's this. Acts 15, 28 says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. In other words, no, that would be an unfair burden for you to have to be, for a Gentile to be circumcised. So they said, it's unfair to us to lay on any great, you to lay on any greater burden than these requirements. You don't have to be circumcised, but here's what we want you to pay attention to. That you abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. So there it is. What were these gills doing? This prophetess was going counter to the very word of God and telling him that it was okay to do. It's a problem. That's just one example. I mean, not to mention the first two commandments where there's no other gods but God, and yet here they are worshiping this little uh, uh, deity for the trade gill. What does Jesus say about it? How does Jesus respond to this false prophetess? Well, in verse 21, he, he, he gets right into it. He calls her Jezebel. He calls this woman who is influencing the church in a very improper way, not only mentally or spiritually, but physically as well. He calls her Jezebel. Now, you remember who Jezebel, that's not a very good name, is it? At the risk of offending some people, I will say 
Not many people name their children Jezebel, do they? Now, if you have a child named Jezebel, please tell me, and I won't say that at the second service. But that's not a very good name. And, and why is that not a good name? Because you remember Jezebel in the Old Testament? King Ahab was the king of Israel, and he, he, was, he is, of all the kings of Israel, he's probably the worst. And he was bad. He was a bad king. He didn't want to do what a king was supposed to be doing. He did not, only did he not do nothing. He didn't only not do nothing. Erase that from the tape if you would. But he did bad things. And then, while he's king, he marries this Canaanite woman named Jezebel. She becomes queen of Israel. And she was actively trying to stamp out all the prophets of God. Remember, even Elijah and he was going to replace the faith of Israel with the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And that involved feasting, sacrificing to idols, and sexual immorality. And she was ruthless about it. She was killing God's people, God's prophets. And she was so bad, and she was uh, so disliked by the people that eventually some of her acquaintances and some of the Israelites took her and threw her out a window. And she landed on the ground, crashed on the ground and died. And the dogs ate her all the way up to where the only thing left was a skull. That's Jezebel. That's who Jesus is comparing this false prophetess to. So that's halfway through and that's the background. You see, that's what's going on uh, in this letter. So let's look at it just a little bit. Now, the church in Thyatira, if you look early at verse 18, was a pretty good church. Jesus commends the church. I mean, they were doing good things. It was a growing church. I mean, they weren't coasting. I mean, Jesus says the the latter works exceed the first, so they were growing. They weren't just resting on their laurels. They weren't just coasting. They weren't inclining and now leveling and starting to decline. They were continuing to not be satisfied with the status quo, and they were pressing on. They were commended for their love and for their faith and for their loyal service and for their, their patient endurance, and that's good. I mean, if someone comes to you and says, you know, you minister to me. I mean, I, I, I just think it's great. I mean, I look at you and I know it's not easy. And, and you know, I, I've, I've noticed a love that you have for people and it really comes through. And, and I really admire your loyalty and your, your faithful service. And the way you put up with people, the patience that you have. I mean, if it was me, I'd, just, I'd probably throw in the towel. I mean, you really demonstrate what a Christian is. And that ministers to me, and I really appreciate you. If someone came to us and, and said that, but wouldn't that be encouraging? Wouldn't that be kind of rewarding? I mean, wouldn't that be such good stuff to encourage a believer? And isn't that such good stuff to say about a church? Jesus was commending this church for the good fruit, and they were growing in their good fruit. However, Nevertheless, but in spite of their good fruit and their condemnation, there is this bad fruit that was spreading and rotting in their midst. He says, but I have this against you. And now remember that we, that we uh, uh, 
We say, what is this saying to the church there? What is this saying to the church here? And is it saying anything to us individually? What's going on? Well, he says it exactly what's going on. He says that they are tolerating a person who is gaining a following, championing a lifestyle that's contrary to the word of God. Now you see how it's coming up to modern day? When's the last time on the news or you had a discussion with someone and that idea of toleration came up? That's kind of a word for today. You know how if you look at the media or if you read the paper, how we are asked to tolerate, how we're asked to allow or to to permit or to support and agree with whatever it is, whether it's a lifestyle choice, We can talk about the demands for toleration when it comes to a particular sexual choice or when it comes to to, to women's health. And we know how the logic goes in our culture today. That people say, I feel like it's right, so it must be right. And since it's right, then I have a right. And I want the freedom to choose. I want the freedom to a particular lifestyle. And I'm not limiting it to the, to the common idea of what that lifestyle is talked about. But it could be many different things. Because you see, it seems so right. It seems so, so real. I deserve. You know, I, the Bible, it, it must be off here. There must be a different way to, to interpret it. Because it just doesn't square with the way I feel. See, what was going on in this little church has always gone on from before then and up until now. Hey, I have this lifestyle. It could range from a moral choice, but it could also could be a lifestyle that, that, that of holding to a standard of living. And I don't want to change my lifestyle. Today it might be redefining what life is, or it may be restating what marriage really is. Or it might be something like compromising our convictions that are in the word of God as plain as day so that I can follow after this idol or that idol. A lifestyle is fine as long as it is in line with the words of the giver of life himself. Now here's the thing. Agendas are out there. I mean, we know it. And we always talk about it. You read blogs about it. You see it on the news. These agendas for many different things are out there. And the temptation to idols, the temptation to consumption, we know, is out there. And we know that. But you know what? That's not really what the issue is in Thyatira. Because the agendas that is going on there is not out there but it is in here. It was on the inside of the church. And look at today. We see it coming. Let's promote this agenda. Let's promote this or that way of life. Let's make it not only culturally acceptable, but let's get the culture to champion it. And now it's making its way into the church. And what does the church do about it? You might have read in the last couple of weeks, a very, very fine Christian organization called World Vision made the decision to allow same-sex married couples to be members of their staff. Now, I can understand their logic. 
They're a Christian organization. And you still had to sign a statement of faith. And you uh, still, if you weren't married, had to practice abstinence. But they said, you know, this is a matter for the church to decide. And we're not the church. We're an organization. And the goal of our organization is to feed the poor. So we don't want to get involved in all of these, these doctrinal decisions. We'll live, leave that up to the church. Well, fortunately, what they realized was that to not take a position was really defaulting to the position. And in this case, for example, to tolerate same-gender marriage was to support it. So they reversed their decision. For the church in Thyatira to tolerate this false prophet Jezebel was to condone her influence. And people might say, well, now, I probably don't agree with it, but it's... It's who I am, you know. I mean, but, I mean it's, but who am I to say it, to, to, to argue, even though I don't personally agree? I mean, that's between them and God. I know what I believe. I just, you know, I, I'm going to let them settle it. But there's a consequence. There's a consequence of toleration. I, I have a bad example to explain it. Back when we were, uh, <clears throat> my friends and I just got out of college, we were, you know, we were on the dating scene, the, the Christian dating scene. So we would, you know, didn't, like everybody else, we had no idea what we were doing. So, so we we're, we're on the dating scene, and we came up with this little motto. We kind of took it out of the Bible, totally out of context, which I don't suggest. But our, our, our dating motto was this, just among us. We took it out of Song of Solomon, and it was, run, catch the little foxes. That was our motto. It was so stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start sweating like Jim Umloff now, just being able to say that I was somehow in a fun way connected with that. But this is how bad it was. That's not even the whole verse. Because the whole verse says this, run, catch the little foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. That's the whole verse. And that means something. Because you see, this Jezebel character was the fox that was spoiling the vineyard. And when an attitude of toleration, if it's mishandled, when an attitude of moral compromise and of tolerance comes into a church, then it can spoil the fruit of that church and it can spoil the fruit of our lives as well if we allow it. So here's a question. How does it get this way that a good church can tolerate actions and attitudes that fly in the face of the Word of God? Well, I think the answer is actually found in this passage. Think with me for a minute. Think with me about this idea of tolerance in the church today. And it's thorny. And I mean, it's not, I mean, you've got to figure out how to handle it because uh, it's not always black and white, and yet it's growing, and tolerance is being redefined. There's a couple of issues. You know, I've already mentioned some. Uh, you, you can read them in the, in the paper. There's theological issues, too. 
Uh, there's, there's different things going on that people say, you know, there really is no hell, for example. So people, it just changes the whole way that we view things and our responsibility as believers. Or there's a theological issue that if you have enough faith, God will materially prosper you. And that sometimes is hard to work out practically and goes against with some of the things that God says in his word. And there's cultural issues as well. And the question is, how can what has been condemned for centuries be tolerated today and seen as okay? And I think it lies in two things. Number one, it lies in the modern day view of what makes a good church. And number two, it lies in the, an incomplete view of who Jesus Christ is as he's pictured in Revelation, that he is holy and that he is the Lord and that he has authority. Now, let me explain. If you, if you ask a lot of uh, churchgoers around the country, if you ask them what makes a good church, it is very close to the qualities that are mentioned by Jesus in commending this church in Thyatira. You know, they say things like, uh, well, a good church has, uh, has a lot of love. And a good church has a strong faith and there's good ministries. There's good opportunities to serve there. And the people just seem to get along with each other. They're patient with each other. Those are the things that make up a good church. Love and faith and service and a loyal service and patient endurance. That's what people tend to say what makes a good church. And I would agree. And you ask churchgoers what they think of Jesus Christ. And you know what they say is something that's very similar in a lot of ways? They say that, 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 well, Jesus loves me and he is faithful. I know that I can trust him. And the thing I like about Jesus is that he forgives me and that Jesus is patient with me. And you see, that's pretty similar to the commendation of this church that we're reading about. But let me ask you. Can you sense anything that might be missing in this commendation? Can you see anything that's missing in the way that people tend to describe a good church? I'll tell you what is missing. What is missing is the modern day concept that most churchgoers put on the back burner that Jesus Christ is absolutely holy and appreciate what it means that Jesus Christ, who loves us, is Lord. It means that he is to be feared. And there's a message here when you read this passage and you see the type of judgment that Jesus Christ is putting on this false teacher. I mean, just look at verse 21 through 23, and he says this. He says, I give her time to repent. That's grace. Um, possibly the apostle John or some of the church leaders had gone to her before and said, you need to stop this. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw her into a sick bed. That's kind of a play on the bed of immorality is now becoming a sick bed. And with those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into a great tribulation. And some of these folks, if not all of them, that were committing adultery with her were members in the church. Unless they repent of their works, I'll throw them into great tribulation. And I will strike her children dead. That's powerful. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each 
according to their works. How can you read this passage and not come away with the understanding that Jesus is holy? That Jesus does the judging. That he is the one, as much as he loves us, he is still the one that is holy and does the judging and even does the condemning. We don't like to think about him that way. So what do we do? What do we do with this idea? What do we do uh, when, when, when an agenda comes within the church that goes against the word of God? Well, here's what he says in verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you, there was a group there, The rest of you do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. You've got it tough enough as it is. You're not falling prey to this. I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So there's those in the church who who didn't believe this prophetess, this Jezebel. And they didn't practice what she was saying. And they were willing to look at it and they were to say, this is wrong, this is not from God, in fact, it is from Satan, and I am not going to give in no matter what it costs. Jesus says, hold fast to what you have. What is that? What is he saying to hold fast to? He's saying, hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the good news. Because if this passage is true, and I believe it is because it's the word of God, then, God, then Jesus will eventually judge those who are espousing teaching from within the body that flies in the face of the word of God. Hold fast by growing in the knowledge and the truth of the word of God. Do the things of the gospel and know that it can be difficult to go against the tide. But yet that's what Jesus did, didn't he? And I think it also says that as we hold tightly, we need to hold up that mirror called the Word of God. And we need to examine it and study it and learn from it and and learn about it and look into it and ask ourselves, honestly, what do I see? Do I find the tendency in my life to move towards compromise? Am I tending to toleration in this area of my life or, or that area of my life? Are there certain things that I want maybe more than the pleasure of God? Do I feel like I have the right to a particular lifestyle, whatever that might be? And am I willing to do uh, uh, the things in order to uh, compromise to get it? You know why this church in Thyatira was tolerant of these false prophets? And you know why the church, if the church is, why the church in America is tolerant today? It's because they have lost, possibly, lost understanding of the complete nature of who Jesus Christ is. Isn't it interesting that in the whole Bible, God decided to put the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, the final thought... The final idea, the final picture that he's leaving us with is about the holiness and the majesty and the victory of Jesus Christ. You see, the love of Jesus Christ is magnified by the holiness of Jesus Christ. And the holiness of Jesus Christ is magnified by his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, 
It's so easy for us when we call you father to picture an earthly father. And you are that and you're so much more. Father, I ask that, that, that we might take these words, that we might hold them in our face as a mirror. I pray for the leadership, not only of our churches, but churches around the world, uh, churches especially in America, because this letter is addressed to the messenger of the church, and that's the leadership of the church. So, Lord, we pray that you might give us wisdom and knowledge and judgment and uh, uh, courage in order to follow you Uh, in order to live a life that pleases and satisfies you. May we be satisfied in that. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.